Well, let me read uh, Exodus chapter 14 after I've prayed. Let me pray first, then I'll read. Our Father, we can easily say that you are powerful, but please, Holy Spirit, help us tonight to take in how true that is by speaking to us from the Bible so that we might, uh, in a new way, believe in you and uh, believe in your servant, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me read to you Exodus chapter 14 and starting from verse 1. When the Lord said, then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Harimoth between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zippon. And you shall camp it, uh, camp f- facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people and they said what is this that we've done that we have let Israel go from serving us so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horse and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them by the sea, by Pihahot, in front of Baal Ziphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, 
Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, uh, angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming nearer the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in a pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels that they drove heavily. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it, and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered over the chariots and the horsemen, and all the hosts of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and to their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now we'll stop there for a moment and I think the children are going to go out into their uh, little group uh, and uh, uh, maybe uh, they'll take uh, uh, two adults with them this time because uh, uh, there's a little crowd and...
they'll be heading off and we'll be left on our own. And it is a great joy actually to see uh, a lovely little uh, gang of uh, young folk heading to create havoc for Hannah and Debbie and whoever else happens to be with them. So we'll have some peace and quiet for a minute, shall we? And uh, enjoy what this part of the Bible has to tell us. And as we pray and as we pick up our Bibles, let me come uh, into it with a question. Why does God have enemies? Because he does seem to have quite a few of them if you read the Bible. I mean, even if you go to the start of the Bible, where everything is made perfect, how is it that in this perfect world that God made, there is Satan? Why does God have an enemy right from the start and all the way through? But the Bible doesn't tell us the answer to that question in the first book, Genesis, where you meet Satan in the first, uh, in the third chapter. But I wonder if this second book of the Bible and the bit that we've read tonight might be helpful to answer that question, why does God have enemies? Because actually the king of Egypt, well, he's not Pharaoh, but he does what Satan does. He seeks to keep God's people as slaves and is happy to destroy them if they try and escape. And the lesson from Exodus chapter 14 is that if you want to see the greatness of God's power, you will only see how powerful God is if you also see how strong his enemy is. And if you also see how weak his people are, then you'll understand what a strong and powerful God God is. So let's start with God's strong enemy. And you see Pharaoh described with all his strength in verses 5 to 9. Now Pharaoh, you might say, has lost to God already. If you read the chapters before chapter 14, you'll see that uh, God has weakened the grip that Pharaoh had over his people. But Pharaoh is still very, very strong. And you see, these verses tell us how strong he is. And in fact, in verse 7, you see most of his strength described. You see that uh, Pharaoh has six hundred chosen chariots, what we might say today, special forces. Uh, I was in the army, but I was never in the special forces. And uh, uh, these guys were the elite. And there were other chariots too, if you look at verse uh, Now chariots is not a small thing. Egypt is the superpower of that day. And in the way it worked in modern warfare in those days, if you had chariots, you won every single battle you were in. Because they were the latest invention, the newest war machine. And they had enormous speed compared to uh, the foot soldiers. And uh, as uh, 
they uh, shot past you, uh, they could uh, kill on the move because they fired arrows and uh, you could never hit them, they could hit you. So they were a devastating force to have in uh, your uh, arsenal. But they weren't uh, alone. There were trained officers, you can see in verse 7, uh, people who were skilled, Sandhurst's best, uh, leading all that was going on on the battlefield in verse 7. And even that, uh, if that wasn't enough, <coughs> alongside them was the entire might of the Egyptian army if you look at verse 9, the whole army is there. In today's language, that would be like the whole American military force turning up against you. In uh, massive number, bristling with weapons. <coughs> so you can see how uh, these guys are up against the strongest enemy. And then you will see that they themselves are the weakest people. You see that in the next part, in, in, in verses uh, 10 to 14. And that's who we're introduced to you next. If you look at verse 10, you will see that they are panic-stricken and they feared greatly. Now, they are God's people. They are crying out to God in verse 10. But there is absolutely no faith because they don't think God has any chance against Pharaoh. Because in verse 11, if you look, they all expect to die. They are completely without faith and without hope. And they don't like God much because he's the one who's given them a bad leader. They knew they should never have let Moses raise their hopes for escape in verse 12. Why? If only they'd accepted their weaknesses and they stayed in Egypt and they kept serving the Egyptians as slaves, they'd be all right. They are absolutely without any desire to fight and resist. And you can see in verse 13, uh, they don't offer any resistance at all. Uh, they are just there. Their only part would be to be helpless spectators in all that was going to happen after that. They were so scared they did nothing apart from that. Now, let's not be hard on them. Because if you were here last week, you'll know that they were, God kept them from going near the Philistines because they would have been scared of the Philistines in chapter 13, verse 17. Therefore, it's no surprise that they are absolutely uh, panic-stricken by a force that is a whole lot stronger than the Philistines that would have scared them in the last chapter. So they are weak people, and you get a great smell of fear in their weakness as you look at these verses and think. But then you understand the powerful God and you see something God's power described in first verses 1 to 4, but you then get God's power also described in verses 15 to 31. So most of chapter 14 is telling us how powerful God is. You see that right at the start. 
where he seems to control Pharaoh. You see that in the middle where he seems to control creation. You see that at the end, when all his enemies are destroyed. He is absolutely in control and powerful all the way through. You see his control over Pharaoh at the start, because you see that Pharaoh, why is the enemy there? Well, verse 4 will tell you. It is because God controls him and he will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And in case you missed that, it's there again in verses 17 and 18. I will harden the hearts of the Egypts that are going after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. So strong Pharaoh is only really following God's lead. There he is, God, in chapter 40, verse 1, and he gets the people to turn back. Hey, that puts them within Pharaoh's reach once again. And guess what? They put themselves in the one place from which they won't be able to escape because they've got the sea. And they can't do anything about that. Looks like they've got their maps upside down and they've got themselves entirely in the wrong place. And Pharaoh sees them and he goes for them. And this is really what you might think Pharaoh would do, but really what's happening here is that God is dangling his people in front of Pharaoh's nose. Uh, if you're from Iran or from anywhere else, you may not know that uh, uh, the English have a fantastic little game where they, we don't go horse racing in Dagnam because we can't afford it, but we go dog racing, we have greyhounds. And if ever you've seen a greyhound race, what happens is that there is a little artificial rabbit that goes down the track and then the greyhounds go running after it. Uh, believe you me, if you haven't seen it, you've missed nothing. But that's exactly what happens. Well, what's happening here is that God's people are there to entice Pharaoh to go running after them. God is the one who's in control and uh, Pharaoh is the one who's like the greyhound following God's lead. But then he destroys Pharaoh he, by controlling creation. And what happens is the sea gets separated from the dry land. You heard that, didn't you, in the reading? Well, what happened in the front part of the Bible, in the very first chapter, when God made the world, he did this. He divided the sea from the dry land. And so what you've got here is a very, very powerful replay of creation. God does this with the sea. He separates the water from the dry land in verse 21. God is showing his great power in his ability to reproduce creation. And then he shows his great power to, if you like, uncreate what's going on. In verse 27, at the water is allowed to, the separation is removed and the water returns and life is destroyed. So what you're seeing really here is a creator God 
doing what only he can do. You wouldn't be able to do this. I'll tell you what, if you want to uh, try this out when you get home, why don't you get a bowl of water and a couple of hair dryers and see if you can make the Red Sea effect happen. It won't be very exodus like in your kitchen if you try it. I can promise you. But God wonderfully makes this happen. Now, of course, there are always people who are going to say, what happens to the Bible? You don't really want to believe it because it's just not true. When I was in school and I did RE, that's exactly what my RE teacher said all the time. But really what this happened, what, what happened here is worth believing as absolutely true. It's on the same score as the Battle of Hastings or as Neil Armstrong putting his foot on the moon. It's as true as that. As a story told about a person who tried to say it wasn't true. And he was an unbelieving person, but he happened to be reading this chapter to a church of American Africans. And so he read this chapter and someone in the church shouted out, Praise the Lord! God leading all them people through the deep water and keeping them safe. Praise the Lord! What a mighty miracle! And the bloke, who's a bit of an unbeliever, said, no, he wasn't like that, really. I know you see it's called the Red Sea here, but really it was the Reed Sea. It wasn't that deep. And what he had was really a bit of marsh ground, and the tide was out, and so they were able to walk out, really wading out in only about six inches of water. And the same voice in the church shouted out, Praise the Lord! that the Lord should drown all them Egyptians in just six inches of water. What an amazing miracle. Praise the Lord. Yeah, people will say that the Bible isn't true. But the truth is, it is. And God was showing us what amazing power he has over creation in a very real and true way. And that's what he did. He used creation to drown them. And you see that in verses 30 and in 31. So that with every single, not one escaped, enemy removed, you understand how God's power is finally seen when the strongest enemy is removed and when the weakest people are safe. It says here in God, I don't think it means in this case that they were as petrified as they were when the Egyptians were there. It shows instead that they were very grateful. If you like, the penny finally drops. That's what it's really saying. As they understood that they can trust this God that they can really believe this God when he's telling them what he is going to do to keep them safe, that he will. And that they would then believe in his servant Moses. They thought that he wasn't that great to take them out when they had um, uh, sufficient graves in Egypt. And they say, why didn't we want to stay there? And Moses is the one they didn't trust at that point. But from now on, they have clear proof that this is the man who will keep them safe. Now, fearing God for us today 
means recognizing that God can keep his people safe. And it begins to dawn on us that God will save his people. He really will through his servant Jesus. And this uh, is the chapter of the Bible that when anyone gets baptized, they should think about. Because what happens is God puts his people through water that should kill them, which is what happens when people go underwater in baptism. But then he brings them out into a future following Jesus. And that is a fantastic way of understanding baptism. And if you look at the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about this being the baptism of God's people in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And it is a wonderful thing to discover and to put your trust in this God who really can bring you through into perfect safety in a way that you would never imagine possible. So if we were to take this home and think it through, well, what might we learn? Can I suggest there might be three different groups of people because we are a crowd and I wouldn't be surprised if there were three different types of people here tonight or listening to this talk on our website. Maybe the first person I could think about is the person who might be really new to Christianity and may not even say, well, I'm not a Christian yet. How does a person become a Christian? It's easy to think that it happens when you drift into church on Sundays and catch a Sunday habit and so you go to church and therefore you must be a Christian. I think actually it's something deeper that needs to happen. And the deeper thing that needs to happen is that we need to grow great humility in ourselves to see ourselves, if we're not one of God's people, to see ourselves as Egyptians. And it takes a great amount of humility to see ourselves, actually, we're starting off as uh, an enemy of God. That's what the Egyptians were. It's very humbling to see ourselves like that. But when we see ourselves like that, and only when we see ourselves like that, we can plead with God to change us so that we no longer are any of his enemies, but we become one of his friends. And it's important for us to have that conversation with God. Because he is able to save people. And anyone who calls out to him to do that will become his friend and be safe. So would you see yourself with deep humility that you are an Egyptian, perhaps even one of his enemies, and to ask God to deal with you graciously and to rescue you along with the rest of his people. Ask him. You have that conversation with him. What happens if you're someone who's been to church? Loads. And actually there are lots of people who have gone to church. Different churches. What can we learn from that? Well, I want to suggest that uh, 
it might be a good thing for us to see ourselves as Israelites. And by that I mean people who can go from faith to fear in under two seconds when something goes wrong. A lot of people think the church people are the ones who know so much about God that if the bomb goes off, they've got their heads straight and they're not going to be flapped, they're going to be turning to God full of faith. But actually, the truth is that we can go from faith to fear in record time. And all that we know about God can be lost in an instant when something bad happens tomorrow. And it's just really helpful for us to understand that God is able to keep us when we don't hang on to him. Because a lot of stuff that people say in church is that you've got to have faith. And it's only if you've got faith that God will be able to look after you and do the things that you need him to do. The reality is that actually God's people in this case were not, not, not full of faith, they were full of fear. And yet you see how God looked after them. And it's fine to just admit that you're weak, like Rob was saying. Because God is able to take care of weak people. And we can trust him. Instead, it's better for us as weak people to take verse 13 home, isn't it? To actually understand that if weak people just stay and see what God will do, they discover his help in a new way. But then thirdly, if you're uh, someone who's a genuine believer, sorry, I should have really moved that on a little bit, um, but uh, if you're someone who's a genuine believer, and it may be that you're someone who very understandably will think that enemies spoil our view of God's greatness. How can God be great if there are enemies around? Well, I wonder if we might be humble in our turn and take verse 4 and verse 17 and 18 to heart. And to understand that the enemies in the Bible occupy a vital place to show us how powerful God is. Not to weaken God's power and to take our confidence away from it. But all the enemies of the Bible are there to increase our confidence in God's power because uh, he is able to overcome them, to see, to show us how powerful he is. So the devil in the Bible is absolutely essential. Pharaoh in this story is absolutely essential. The enemies of Jesus who put him to death on the cross absolutely essential and whenever we are opposed by people who oppose God either in our small ways in Britain because we don't really have to go through too much but in much bigger ways in other countries like North Korea where people are absolutely cruel well Exodus chapter 14 in the Bible is here to show us what we in our day don't see just yet that all the oppressors of God's people are there in the Bible to show us God's great power.
power. And one day when Jesus comes back, we will see the power of God in its fullness because his enemies were strong and he destroyed every one of them and his people were weak and he saved every one of them because that's what happens when God gains great glory over all who oppose him you need all those three ingredients in place if you want to see how powerful God is in our world but I'm going to suggest that we stop there and I'll uh, give you a minute to talk to God maybe from something that you've heard tonight that has helped you and maybe you can just have a quick conversation with him we'll only have quiet for a minute and then I'll finish but then after that it may be that there are things you'd like to ask about or say something in um, response. Uh, we can talk together. We're friends. And I love it that we can do uh, this in a meeting like this. That we can talk to each other and uh, uh, we don't have to be all formal. And uh, we're behaved. You're entirely uh, uh, permitted to disagree with the preacher and uh, say what you would like to say. I'm not trying to gag you. All right? Let's have a minute of quiet, and then I'll pray, and then we'll take some questions and answers. Let me pray. Our great Father, forgive us when we think so often that we're weak, and that the enemy is strong, and that both those things make it look like you are powerless. But through what you have done in the past, please would you give us the eyes of the future. When we see that this is exactly how you showcase your power. And help us to stand firm, trusting you this week knowing that we will see the salvation of God and that you will get all the glory even through the worst things that happen. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.